everybody, I'm Steve Weens, and this is my podcast where I explore humanity, spirituality, and mystery one word at a time. For more about my work, my writing, my books, my preaching, and all that good stuff, head on over to steveweens.com. Well, hey everybody, this good word, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. I'm here with Lynn Heibels. One of my friends, and um, I know it sounds awkward to say heroes, but you really kind of are, Lynn. Hi, Lynn. Um, thanks so much for being on the podcast again. My pleasure. Uh, Lynn partners with women in conflict zones who are committed to reconciliation, peacemaking, caring for refugees, and creating a better future for their children. She's actively engaged in One Million Thumbprints, which we've talked about on the podcast. She's traveled extensively in Syria, Iraq, South Sudan, and the and the Democratic Republic of Congo, as well as Israel, Palestine. And Lynn is just one of these, I, I would say tireless, but I'm sure that's not true. I'm sure you're not a tireless worker, but you certainly are a courageous and adamant uh, work, worker for justice, Lynn. So we're going to talk about refugees today over uh, here in the States, and I know you live in Chicago, um, but there's, especially in the church, I think there's a tremendous care and concern for refugees alongside a healthy dose of ignorance and feeling overwhelmed and feeling like we're not quite sure how to help, what to do. Do we stick our toe in this issue? Is it political? Is it not political? What do we do? And so my heart, our heart, uh, folks, Lynn and I, is to share as many stories with you and to give as many resources as possible so that you can dip your toe in the water, right? Uh, so uh, Lynn, uh, again, has done all this traveling, has really met people, and she has stories of hope um, that really good things are happening through. Beginning issue, do we want to respond out of fear and self-protection, or do we want to try to look at this issue through the eyes of God and through the common commonality of humanity? And that's just, a, there's a big divide there. Oh. We want to with fear or with love. We, yeah, do you want to do it with fear or with love? And let's lead with love. I love that, Lynn. Thank you so much. Well, Lynn, the last time we talked, you had just summited Mount Kilimanjaro, 20,000 feet. Amazing. In order to raise awareness and financial support for women who experience violence in war. And you went with one million thumbprints with uh, a few other women. What are some of your reflections and learnings since doing that? And that was back in March. So it's been maybe nine months. Well, I'll mention two things. Um, one is very personal, then we'll kind of move to the global. But on a personal level, you know, as, as I said, I've said many times, the climb was really hard. Hardest thing I've ever done, hardest thing that any of us have ever done. Um, we finally summited on the morning of the sixth day, but at, or the fifth day, but at midnight, part of that is when we left the final base camp and started our final trudge up the mountain. And it was, you know, pitch black, it was cold. It was steep and it was really hard. But throughout the climb, we, we, you know, every day of the climb, we had this sense that we're all in this together. You know, at about the last 45 minutes of the climb before the summit, I realized that I was really running out of energy. And if I wanted to make it to the summit, I would have to pay attention to myself. 
to my own rhythm. And when I say rhythm, you know, you had to plant the, the pole, get steady, then you had to take a step forward, and then you had to breathe very intentionally, exhale and inhale. And I realized if I stay in that rhythm, plant, step, mm -hmm. breathe, plant, step, breathe, I'll make it to the top. If I don't stay in that rhythm, I'm not gonna make it. And so I sort of had to, really for the first time in the trip, kind of tune everyone out. And even if the group started to slow down, I just stayed in that rhythm. And I did make it to the top. Yeah. But that was that was really profound for me. When it, it is, as I think about moving into the new year, um, there is a time for us to be very focused on what's going on out in the world. There's also a time when we really have to pay attention to our own rhythm, our own needs as a person. And my husband and I just turned 65. So we're sort of entering a new era and, and just really trying to think about what does it mean to live fully into the next era and to, to live a sustainable life, to be able to keep on doing what we're doing. And so that idea of rhythm and my own rhythm is very, is very important to me as I look forward. So that's the personal lesson. But um, on a global lesson, there was something equally profound for me. <clears throat> you know, there were 15 of us Americans who made the climb and it was hard and we worked hard, we prepared hard, you know, the whole time we were given it our all and we made it to the top. But what most people don't, the story that people don't tell is that in order for us 15 Americans to make it to the top, there were 60, 60, oh, literally 60 Africans, porters and guides helping us to the top. They, they carried our supplies, they set up our camp for us, they took it down, they fixed our food, they brought us, you know, they set up our tents at the campground each night, um, they brought us, they brought us a little tub of water to wash our hands in the morning and our feet at night, and they prepared hot drinks for us. They walked us up that mountain. When we thought we couldn't go on, they cheered us on. When we started feeling sick, they would talk us through the symptoms of altitude sickness. I and mean, without them, we literally could not have made it one mile up that mountain. We needed them. And so on the last day, after we came down from the mountain, it's our last time together with these, these amazing people, I just had this unexpected thought about all of the millions of refugees in the world who are climbing really horrific mountains that they did not choose. We chose to climb Kilimanjaro. Um, refugees are not choosing to climb the mountains that they're climbing, but they are. Some of them are climbing the mountain of security. They are literally fleeing across country borders, many times in the middle of the night with bullets chasing them. I mean, this is a life or death mountain and they have no choice but to climb it. Some are climbing the mountain of, um, of healing. They have been so traumatized physically, emotionally, in every way, and they are trying to find healing so they can keep going. And, and it's hard to imagine the level of trauma that every person who is a refugee and has come out of a, con a conflict zone, they have seen death and dying and maiming and terror. They have seen and experienced it all. So that mountain of healing is a really high one. 
for others, it's the mountain of financial sustainability. Every refugee ends up wherever they end up with nothing. Yeah. They lost everything, um, their home, their livelihood, their country, um, and they're starting over with nothing in an environment where they can't legally work. So it's very, very hard to establish any kind of financial security at all. So all of these mountains, refugees, are climbing. And what hit me that day is that all these refugees, they need there's 60 African guides and porters. They need the African walking company that helped us up the hill. And, and who is their version of the African walking company? It's us. Yeah. It's Christians. It's followers of Jesus. It's people who really want to be the hands and feet of Christ. And that picture just does not leave my mind of refugees climbing these mountains. And are we going to show up? and help them up those mountains. Because no matter how hard they work, and they are all working so hard, they're not gonna make it on their own. And so I just see that as a challenge every day. Are we showing up and are we challenging each other to show up? Are we challenging American churches to show up? Because um, they can't do it alone. Yeah. So. I love that picture too and that, that experience of both the rhythms that you're talking about, plant, breathe, step, uh, and the personal and global. I love the in and out of that, even the breath of that, that there are seasons for certain things. And I also love the challenge. Lynn, I remember you and I talking about that last time we talked about on, on the podcast when you told me that, that it really is the churches, it really is followers of Jesus that are the people helping refugees up, up the mountain. And one of the phrases that has been actually echoing in my mind ever since the election, actually, is this phrase, wake up. What does it mean to wake up and realize in a new way, maybe, maybe it's always been true, but in a new way, it really is sort of up to us. It's up to grassroots movements and people that decide to do the right thing. So let's talk about the churches. Um, what do you think, um, what are you seeing in terms of how the church is or isn't? waking up in this time so like number one how would we more effectively wake up and number two are you seeing some churches doing some good work in the world of refugees well i, I there are two issues here one is you know caring for refugees near their homes right like middle east for syrian refugees and iraqi refugees that's one issue caring for them there. Another issue is, you know, embracing refugees that come to this country. And those certainly uh, caring for the refugees in the Middle East, that's where the majority of them are and will stay. And so it's usually desperation that causes them to, you know, try to get to Europe or the U.S. But that's a big issue there. And then there's also the reality of caring for refugees here. And, and, in terms of caring for refugees here, I would I would um, advise people to look at a website. Um, it's a movement called We Welcome Refugees, and it is just to challenge uh, American Christians uh, to engage in refugees here and and globally. But it also has information about how we can advocate um, with our government uh, on behalf of refugees. 
um, how we can support resettlement agencies in the U.S. Um, my dad right now is an 87-year-old widower, and he, my mom died about a year and a half ago, and they were married 66 years. My dad was very lonesome, and his life has just been um, turned upside down in a good way because he got involved with a refugee resettlement organization and has now befriended two young Pakistani Muslim brothers and he just has a new lease on life and he's 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 lost some friends who say why are you caring about those people why are you hanging out with those Muslim boys and he just says are you kidding these are two of the neatest guys I've ever met they are heroic they are survivors and I want to do everything I can for them so that whole there is there's a really beautiful thing that can happen when communities, families, people welcome refugees into our, you know, into our own um, communities in the U.S. But what I have been more involved with personally is the, um, you know, supporting ministries in the Middle East uh, that are caring for literally millions of refugees over there. And I am seeing uh more churches wanting to get involved. I just get emails and information from churches saying, I think we haven't been paying attention to this. And I think the the big challenge for the church is that this is not like an earthquake or a hurricane that, you know, okay, there's a certain amount of damage and you put in a certain amount of money and time and fix it. This I think we have to look at the refugee crisis as a long-term thing. Yeah. The the refugee crisis now is the greatest crisis of refugees and migration that there's ever been. And um, it is changing the world and it's going to continue changing the world. And either it's going to be a totally negative change or it can be, it can be redeemed. It can become a positive change. If, um, if we show up with the love of God and and the tangible acts of service, I interestingly had a gathering at our house, Bill and I did on, on Friday night, and it was a group of Christians, Muslims, and Jews. It, it was um it was just a group of people who came together saying, We we have seen what hatred and violence is doing in the world. We want to join our are very different voices together and say we need a revolution of love and and we want to be part of it and i really do believe that with the the horrific things going on in the world now the only power that can stand against them is the power of god's love shown through people and so i think to the extent that american christians are uh, willing to engage in this um it's either going to be a good, you know, there can be positive changes taking place or it's just all going to be really negative. So I love that you and you and your husband hosting um, Christians, Jews, Muslims in that space of openness, that expansive space of I remember um, one of the organizations you work with is Questcope. And I remember the leader of Questcope is Kurt Rhodes. And he used to tell a story um, about the kitten in the road. And so he they were in Amman, Jordan and the traffic was backed up forever. And it was because there was this little little cat in the road and people were so concerned about this little kitten. 
And so then he spun that out to like, who, what is the kitten in the road that we're going to stop everything for? And I think the only, one of the only reasons why Christians, Jews, Muslims would get together in, in a Christian pastor's house is, is because the kitten in the road is so big. I mean, the refugee crisis is so big that, that we can, you know, we can agree <laughs> that we're going to join forces because God's love is big. God's love is bigger than that. I love that, Lynn. I love that. So you've talked about being involved with organizations that you've, I know you've carefully vetted them. And I'm going to include... We welcome refugees on the show notes, but I also want to include some of the other ones, Preemptive Love Coalition uh, and others. So could you uh, talk through some of these other organizations that uh, you've vetted and that you would say, I trust these people. Here's where maybe you might give a year-end donation. Here's where maybe you might get involved. There are obviously a lot of organizations involved in the Middle East right now, a lot of really good organizations. And on my website, I have... um, listed a number of them that I, I really feel good about. Um, at this point, there are two organizations that I particularly um, recommend for a couple of reasons. One, they're both organizations that were in the Middle East working with vulnerable people before the refugee crisis hit. Yeah. So the history there, they, um, they, they understand the complexity of the region they are connected with the Christian communities and the Muslim communities. They have built relationships up over the years, and they were there. So when this refugee crisis hit, they could really be the first responders. And um, I've I've seen the work of both of them. Um, they're very they're very smart in how they work. They utilize local resources and local people, local volunteers. So they're very um, indigenous yeah, and really respect what they're doing. And yes, one is called Questcope yep. and the other one is called Preemptive Love. And I can tell you some of what I've seen them do on the ground if you want me to. Yes. Okay. So um, Questcope, I know that you're familiar with this organization. Their headquarters is actually in Minneapolis. And they have been very involved with one of the largest refugee camps in Jordan. It's the Zatari refugee camp. And the numbers have gone up and down, but an average of about 80,000 people. I mean, it's, it's like a huge city in the desert with, with all these tents. Well, many um, Syrian refugees came there. Um, that was early on in the, in the conflict. They came there. And one thing we don't real about, realize about Syrian refugees is that Syria was a very developed country, highly educated, professional, beautiful. That was like the vacation spot yeah. in the Middle East. Yeah. So a lot of these, especially young people, ended up in camps. They were 20-something. They had been university students or they had just started a business or they were you know, uh, establishing their, their vocational life. And suddenly they're in this camp in the middle of the desert with nothing. And so they thought, okay, well, we'll be here for a while, but eventually we'll, we'll be going home. So we're just going to kind of, you know, wait, you know. Then after two, two years, three years, we realize we don't know if we're going home. Wow. And actually, there's nothing to go home for. For many of them, yeah. in the cities that they came from are totally demolished. I mean, the infrastructure destruction of Syria is just unprecedented. I mean, all the rules of warfare have been violated. And so, so many of these young people realized, okay, we're not, we might not go home. Maybe this is our life. Mm -hmm. What do we do? 
So Questcope trained these young adult Syrian men and women to be educators and mentors for the younger Syrian refugees in the camp. And so by the time I met them, I visited the camp and met these young people and heard their stories, they were saying, yeah, we wish we could go home, but if we can't, we're building a life of meaning here. And who better to care for these young Syrian refugees than us? These are people, these are our kids. And it was to be in that situation and realize everything these young, smart, energetic people had lost, and yet seeing them smiling Mm. and having a sense of purpose, it was remarkable. And that is a very, uh, very smart way to engage refugees. You know, I, I, I was just so impressed with them. And so then that's Questcope. They are also involved in Syria. Um, and have been for decades, so they have the relationships there. They're actually caring for 600,000 Syrians in Syria right now, with thousands more coming to them from Aleppo now and Homs. And so, uh, again, they're they're positioned right on the front lines. I just got an email from the director, Kurt Rhodes, last last night. They They really need funds now just because of the huge influx of people coming right now from Aleppo. And... One thing that they're doing is they are caring for the most vulnerable. They just received um, about 2,500 people who were injured, disabled, the most vulnerable people. And um, so what they're doing right now is really extraordinary, and they they need our support. And then um, another organization that I really love is called Preemptive Love Coalition, and they have been in Iraq for over 10 years. And so when the uh, um, when ISIS came to Iraq and there were many displaced people, they were right there on the ground ready to serve these um, Iraqis. And so I visited them in Iraq a couple of times last year and saw their work. And, and here's just one of the stories um, from Iraq that we met. There's a, a minority um group of people in northern Iraq called the Yazidis, Mm. and they were particularly targeted by ISIS. And I mean, there was a genocide going on against the Yazidi people. And so there was some international intervention to kind of protect them to a certain degree, but they suffered tremendously. And many Yazidi women were kidnapped by ISIS and kept as slaves, Mm. sex slaves, and many, many people were slaughtered. by by ISIS. And so um, preemptive law began caring for these, you know, displaced Yazidi people. And so uh, I visited with some of these women who, again, they had fled on foot. They, I mean, they walked for miles and miles. I talked with one woman who at a certain point had to decide which one of her children that she would leave because she couldn't carry them both. Oh. And she had to watch her you know, child die. And I mean, these women had the most horrific stories of loss, watching their children starve, watching their husbands shot in the back as they were you know, trying to get away. And, and they were just, I mean, in such despair, in such despair and really um, everything in life was negative for them. So, uh, Jessica Courtney, who is her husband, 
uh, Jeremy Courtney, uh, she, they founded uh, Preemptive Love, and they have been living in Iraq with her two kids for um, probably about 12 years now. She said, if we could do something to help these women make some money, that at least that give them something to focus on and, um, you know, help them feel like they're doing something to move forward. Well, that story has become a huge success story. Um, they are now selling sisterhood soap. It's a beautiful soap made by the Iraqi displaced women out of olive oil. They also, I have, I have these things right here, Steve. You can oh, see them. Yeah, and yeah. I know that won't show up on the podcast, but but these women now are saying we are moving forward. We are. They're actually selling their soap to other refugees. Refugee camps are using this soap, and so there's a um, both of these organizations, Questcope and Preemptive Love. They show up um, with the emergency food, the emergency relief that's needed. And yet they also work more long term. So what is going to help these refugees carve out a new life? And so preemptive love, they started out in Iraq, but now they're very, very involved in Syria and um, right on the front lo- front lines of uh, Aleppo also right alongside Questcope. So they're just both doing amazing work. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't know preemptive love as much, though I have followed Jeremy and Courtney in their journey. So they've they've traveled around uh you know iraq and then syria and now they're in aleppo in fact i just saw a video uh mm-hmm. last week of jeremy he said it's gonna snow yeah. in aleppo and you know so yeah. oh, that's um, the other thing. winter has yeah. descended there you know in syria and iraq it's very cold yeah. very cold windy and wet so the needs are just heightened right now yeah you know? well and i oh, think i think you know i know like Questcope, when you threw out those numbers, all these hundreds of thousands, like you think they might be an organization of several hundred people. They're not, they're right? They're like a couple dozen people that are on staff with Questcope. And I know Kurt, Dr. Rhodes, yeah. and it's just year That's to like, year. They're always hoping, like, you know, are we going to like be open next year? And it all depends on grants and funding and donations and all that stuff. Right. And. I, that's one thing I like about these organizations. There's not a lot of bureaucracy no. involved. You no. know, between the leadership and the people on the ground, there aren't a lot of levels. So you know where your money's going. Yeah. It's, it's being wasted. Well, but there's a tremendous need. It, thank you for telling me, telling us those, giving us those pictures, Lynn. And, and again, I will put on the show notes that you can find steveweens.com slash blog or just link in the whatever however you found the podcast there will be a link to the show notes and you can you can make a you can just click on Questcope click on preemptive love and we encourage you like make a donation today it really actually helps and Lynn's right I mean like they're just small organizations that are all of them are on the ground telling the stories um, and doing really good work and the turnaround time is pretty quick I mean they when they have these ideas they they can actually make them happen so it's very hopeful it's very hopeful. I mean, this week, this week, um, Questcope had these 2,500 disabled people and injured people come to their care. And so, I mean, literally last night I emailed the people at Questcope to say, okay, this is how much donation I'm giving right now. I just want you to know it's coming in yeah. now. And that, that is how, how, how immediate the need is yeah. right now. And, and again, just again, I know I just said it, but so... This is routine for Questcope and Preemptive Love. They get 
the 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 government says, "Hey, we have 2500 disabled refugees that need help. Can you take them?" I mean, that that's how it works. And this little staff of a dozen, a couple dozen people uh, has to mobilize their volunteers of thousands and and get it yeah, happen, and they do it. Right now in Syria, um, Questco has 300 staff there. Okay. So they've really ramped up, but they have 1,500 volunteers. <laughs> in oh so that is the way it's happening. Yeah. It's, it's with local people. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. All right, Lynn, I, 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 just this morning I posted a, a question. I posted your picture on, on Instagram and Facebook, and, and I said, hey, if you have a question for Lynn, shoot it out. And um, so a couple of people did. Uh, this is from Jessica Arend, uh, and you mentioned this before with We Are Refugees, but I want you to tee it up again. But she asks, what are some effective ways to put political pressure on our leaders to take legislative action to help refugees? And, she, and then, then she noted, I'm, I'm sort of sick of like, continuing to sort of sign the Facebook, the Facebook, uh, you know, petition that may, may go nowhere. So um, do you have an answer for Jessica? Well, I, I would recommend that she go to the We Welcome Refugee website that has um, information on there. And actually, there is a petition on there that will be presented to um, Congress on January 20th. Um, just saying we as Americans care about what is going on and then we want our government to engage and we want to support our government engaging uh, more with refugees and, uh, you know, violent conflict. So. All right, Jessica. So, and all of all y'all, uh, go on to, we welcome refugees. I'll put that on the, on the show notes and you can sign the petition. That petition will be taken to Congress on, on inauguration day, January 20th. And, um, and, and we can, that's one small way we can, we can make a difference. And if you want to contact your legislative representatives, you can do so. And you can see how to do that on We Welcome Refugees, right, Lynn? Is that, is that, is that true? Yes. Well, my friend, Matt Moberg, uh, who works at CPC, I think, do you know Matt? Do you know? I know. Okay. Well, Matt, hi, my friend. He writes, in the midst of such an overwhelming crisis that is leaving all kinds of people displaced and afraid, what kind of interfaith collaboration have you seen uh, in among those trying to respond? And how would you encourage churches to go ahead and reach out to other faiths uh, who are also working for Common Good? And you already shared the story about you and, you and Bill and, and Friday night, but have anything else to add for Matt? Well, I would say that, you know, on the ground in the Middle East, um, you, you are seeing the interfaith work uh, because it has, has, to right, be, right. has to be happening. You know, I mean, one of my favorite ministries in the Middle East is this church that we've talked about yeah. uh, before in Amman, Jordan, that was in a changing neighborhood. A lot of kind of wealthy people moved out of the neighborhood and left empty buildings and that were then filled up with Syrian refugees. So the uh, um, very vulnerable urban refugees in this church realized we have this whole community full of Syrian Muslims. How do we as a Christian church reach out to them? And they began by just, by just loving them, showing up, find out what are your needs? Well, it's for food. It's for a mattress for your kids or whatever. And there's been a beautiful relationship um, developed there between the Christians and the Muslims. And, and, I, I saw it and, and was part of that um, there on the ground. 
But over here, I would say, especially um, in the light of the uh, the recent election, a lot of, I mean, we've discovered this, a lot of um, Muslim and Jewish people in our community have felt more vulnerable than ever. And and one of the reasons we had this, this group at our house the other night is we we heard that some of the Muslim children, they were really afraid to go to school. Yeah. Um, they were being harassed and all this. So we thought, you know, less, and we, we had begun establishing a relationship with this mosque uh, locally about a year ago. And so we, we had, we had relationships with them already. And then after the election, we knew that they, things were getting a little tougher for them. So we said, let's get together and, and, and talk about how we can move forward. And one of our our, our focus uh, in the future is to bring more of the kids from our different from synagogue from the church to from the mosque together um, to support one another. You yeah. know, so kids, you know, feel like they have friends. You know, in the other. So it's not the other anymore. It's just friends. Yeah. Um, but at at this gathering uh, Friday night, I I talked about some of the work with refugees and. There was this Muslim woman. She said, "Okay, you must send me the information about these organizations." And I said, "Well, I, you know, they are Christian organizations. They work with Christians and Muslims." And she said, "I don't know. I don't care who they are. As long as they're doing good work and they're caring for everybody." So I really think it is. Um, there's a unique opportunity here to bring people together around a common cause. And and one of the things we talked about on Friday night with the, um, there were a couple of rabbis there, yeah. and the leader of the mosque and just other people from our communities, but saying, what can we do together to, to serve our communities, to to raise money together, to you know focus on refugees together? There's, there's a great opportunity in service to bring people together. I, you know, it's funny you mentioned kids. A couple of weeks ago, um, we had some kids over for a play date. You know, I've, I've little kids, Isaac's nine and the twins are seven. And so this little boy and his sister came over and they're, they're Muslim. And, and then, uh, you know, when their mom came over to pick them up, we were chatting with, with, with you know, with her and, um, and I was just, you know, chit chatting. I said, what are you doing after this? And she said, Oh, we're going to go get passports for the kids. And I'm like, Oh, great. You know, what, what are, are you guys going somewhere? And then she just, you know, her face falls and, and she goes, no, we're just, we just want to be ready. And I was like, uh, and I knew exactly what she was talking about. Every, it just, yeah. there's a lot of fear now. And Lynn, we live in this, you know, suburb in Northwest Minneapolis. And you, you know what I mean? Like you don't think, yeah. oh, no, it's not here. Oh my goodness. So they're getting their seven-year-old passports just in case. And then that night she texted my wife and she said, Thank you so much for talking with me about that. I, and I realized I haven't talked to anyone other than my husband about this. So there's this fear. There's the, and I think um, having a heart for hospitality, which means what you care about, I care about. And it doesn't matter what, um, what your religion is, what your faith background is, because this is a human problem. It's a human crisis. And um, so I, I, I um, and I think we, there are things that we can do, both legislative and right in our homes. Right, right. Um, and, and, you know, um, last uh, winter, Kurt, Kurt Rhodes from yeah. 
visited us and Jeremy Courtney from Preemptive Love, and we talked about, you know, what can we as, you know, Chicago Suburbanites do, you know, to make a difference over there? And they said, one of the biggest things that you can do is make a difference here. Yeah. Build, uh, build the relationships here because how Christians and Muslims, especially, relate in the U.S., everybody sees that over there. Yeah. They see it, and it makes a huge difference. So... You know, when we the first time we got together with some of the people from the mosque about a year ago, this woman, a professional woman, she has two kids, one in high school, one in junior high. Her junior high son said to her before she left the house this morning, Mom, you're going to go meet with Christians. Do you think that's safe? Please text us when you're done. Okay. I mean, what they have what they have felt coming from Christians was not good. And it made it it scared them. And we need to we need to be as active as we can in countering countering that message. And, you know, Bill and I, after everybody left on Friday night, we stood in our kitchen cleaning up and just we, we said something so sacred happened in our house. We feel like our house was sanctified in in some kind of profound way tonight. But. Coming out of that, my thought was not, oh, yeah, we have to have a big conference with thousands of people together. No, it was like, how do we encourage people to bring people together in their home? To have these little gatherings where you're offering hospitality, you're listening to people's stories, you're you're becoming friends and not not strangers and certainly not the other anymore, you know? So I think there is a huge, simple – but profound relational uh, work for us to do. And the implications are global, really. They can start local, but the implications are global. Absolutely. And I wish we could see that, you know, that um, and even Psalm 23, you've prepared a table in the presence of my enemies. I, I see that as um, y- you've prepared a table so that my enemy will become my friend. I mean, that's how I read that. And that's what that's what happens. You, you, you actually can't sit down and eat with people for very long and not realize that uh, there's so much uniting us. And, um, you know, and, and, and some of the things that I thought were about the other just were preconceived notions that really aren't true or it just breaks down the fear. So I, I couldn't agree more, Lynn. Um, OK, is there anything you hoped I would ask you, Lynn, that I that I haven't asked you yet? No, I think you did a really good job, Steve. I think the one the one final thing I would say, and I think maybe we talked about this before, um, when you get involved in something like this, when you open your heart, it, it's you are really opening up your heart to be overwhelmed and hurt. Yeah. Um, and I guarantee with the refugee crisis, as massive and horrible as it is, if you open your heart up to that, you're going to be haunted. You're going to be haunted by faces that you see. I mean, I, I play with my grandkids, and I can't help but think of kids their age, the photos that I've seen of kids in Syria and Iraq who, you know, are just in, who will never have that experience that my grandkids are having. You know, It haunts you you will begin to feel despair. I mean, about a week ago, I had to quit watching the news. Yeah. I just couldn't take it anymore. And I, I don't I don't ever want to be the 
kind of person who turns turns it off, you know, but, but I just had to have a break from that. I, I just felt like overwhelmed by the despair. But I have learned over the years that there are two two ways to respond to despair. One is denial. Okay, pretend you didn't see it. Turn off the TV and don't ever turn it on again, you know, but just um, pretend it's not your problem. And and the despair goes away. Mm. But I think become a little less human. But the other, uh, the antidote to despair that I think is positive is action. Um, Whatever small or great action you can take. And so one reason I don't like to listen to the news is because you only hear the bad stuff. But when I read, when I read stories from preemptive love or Questco, I see the bad stuff, but then I see the response. I see the hope coming out of that. And I need, I need to look at it that way. I need to be reminded that in all of these situations, there are also some wonderful people doing amazing things and we can get behind them and make a difference. Yep. We're not alone. And I'm reminded of your metaphor in the beginning of making it up the mountain, right? It's plant the pole, take a step, breathe. And if you stop doing those things, you're not going to make it. And I can't, I can't help but imagine if any of us are going to um, open our hearts to any crisis in the world, especially the refugee crisis, we're going to have to develop our rhythm of plant, step, breathe, and you know, and really stay faithful to it, and uh, have rhythms and seasons where you turn off the news for a while and tend to your own soul and and allow others to tend to your soul. Um, and so, thank you, Lynn. I I just have loved talking with you again. You are such a I I. Whenever I talk to you, I turn off the, you know, I close my computer and then I'm, I am filled with a kind of hope that is very helpful to me because uh, I can, I can be given to some despair <laughs> about some of this stuff. I don't. Sensitive. I know, Steve, but I appreciate you saying that, but you know, I take, I take great, great hope from, you know, talking to and hearing from younger leaders like yourself mm. who care about these issues and are really are willing to challenge other people yeah. um, because yeah. we we need to join together and we need to cheer each other on yeah. in what we're doing. Yeah. So. Well, we're in, it, we're in it together for sure, Lynn. And to all the listeners, I want to encourage you again to get on the website, get on the uh, get on Lynn's website, lynnheibels.com, or just shoot over to my show notes, stevewings.com slash blog. And you can find uh, links to Questco, to Prince of Love, to We Welcome Refugees, and a few others. And we really encourage you, this is kind of the time to take action. You know, uh, take one action today. Maybe it's signing the petition on We Welcome Refugees about the um, what's going to be presented to Congress on January 20th. Maybe it's making a donation to Questcope or Preemptive Love. Maybe it's making an inquiry uh, locally to a mosque or uh, an imam uh, or who knows, or a family that you know that's Muslim. Uh, so, Lynn, at the end of the podcast, uh, I always say this thing, and, and I actually have grown to love it more and more as the year and a half has gone by, but we're dust and we're breath. We're limited and we're limitless. We're human and we're holy and we're in it together. And I'm so grateful for advocates like you who share the stories that you see and willing to let your heart get broken and keep keep sharing the stories. So, uh, thank you, my friends. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate you. And Merry Christmas to you and your family. Bye-bye.